Welcome to Harney's Offshore Litigation Podcast. I am Ian Mann, and I am absolutely delighted today to have as my guest speaker, Vicky Lord, uh, Managing Partner of Harney's Shanghai Office. Welcome, Vicky. Hi, Ian. Good morning. Uh, nice to see you. <laughs> Thank you for joining. This will be, I hope, a fascinating discussion to really look at some of the idiosyncrasies, perhaps, of working and operating in China, as you have done for many years, and how that interacts with the conduct of litigation elsewhere. In particular, I suppose for you, it's Cayman Islands BVI litigation, is it? Yeah, that's right. We are very fortunate to work with some fantastic clients here in mainland China in their offshore litigation. We do so through our foreign representative office, which is a regulated entity by the Ministry of Justice. And as foreign lawyers practicing foreign law in China, we are ourselves all foreign representatives of that entity and regulated by the Ministry of Justice too. And it's interesting that in Shanghai, where we're based, there is a plethora of foreign law firms that are doing just the same as we do to the UK, uh, US, and we work with our clients really to help them navigate offshore. But that also requires some interplay domestically here on the ground in the PRC and quite often we'll have cross-border cases where there'll be matters in PRC court and matters going on, let's say, in the BVI or in Cayman. Absolutely, or international arbitrations. And I often think sort of Shanghai is a bit of a hidden gem, actually. I mean, in the roaring 1920s and 1930s before the Second World War, Shanghai was the greatest city in Asia. And actually, Hong Kong was a sort of backwater. And then we had this period where it was the other way around. But I, I think, well, you've obviously chosen to live in Shanghai. I think, I think it might very well be, certainly for disputes the other way around these days. Yeah, I'd, I'd entirely agree. And it's a hugely international city with a lot going on, really fast paced and an exciting place to work mm. uh, and to live. I suppose the difference that the audience will be interested in is if you're working in Hong Kong or Singapore as an offshore lawyer, you have the backdrop of 150, 200 years of English common law history. So when you are meeting clients, taking proofs of evidence, serving documents, choosing governing law, you are speaking to a crowd that understands those concepts. What sort of environment, what sort of difficulties do you face in light of the fact that China has a different proud legal pedigree and history? I mean, for example, do you have freedom to choose your own governing law in a contract in the PRC? Yes. The civil law system in the PRC, as we understand it, and from our PRC council colleagues, Parties are free to choose the governing law in a contract if it's a foreign-related transaction. Mm. Um, you obviously need to identify whether it's a foreign-related transaction or not. And typically, the following elements really will be, will be present for that. So whether one of the parties is foreign, if one of the parties habitually resides outside the PRC or that the subject matter of the transaction occurs outside of the PRC. In addition, you can also look to see whether the facts leading to the establishment change or termination of that transaction are outside of the PRC. For example, where you may have delivery of goods under a sales agreement being delivered, say, to uh, Singapore. That that would be uh, an element as, as well that could lead you to conclude uh, that it was a foreign-related transaction. So that's one of the things 
Nations that does allow parties to have freedom to choose the governing law of a foreign-related mm. transaction. And am I making this too simplistic, or is it easy for you in the sense that you are incorporating and setting up and advising clients to use offshore companies as the obligor for finance or the joint venture vehicle for joint share capital for enterprise, and that gives it the necessary foreign element then to choose your foreign law? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. And typically clients are using Cayman Islands and, and BVI vehicles for that international business. So certainly from, from that perspective, it's relatively easy for us to identify where a transaction will be capable of being mm. governed by a foreign law. Mm. And what we are seeing is people are using Cayman Islands BVI law, certainly for some of these transactions and, and some of these agreements. And when it comes to the Hague Convention, when it comes to you know serving, let's say, Cayman Islands proceedings on a natural persons or corporates located in China. Is that difficult? Is China being a good global citizen and, and letting those sorts of originating process be served uh, within its borders? I mean, certainly from our experience, we haven't had difficulties in serving in, in the PRC. Mm. Um, mm. We're very much obviously embedded into the system and our team here, um, apart from myself, everyone speaks Chinese and what we do liaise with, with the relevant authorities on that. Mm. Um, and what we find is that although China has objected to Article 10 of the Hague Service Convention with regard to service through postal channels, um, mm. it does get on with allowing for service through the Hague Convention and it just means that you have to tick the necessary boxes to allow that to happen. So, you know, make sure that you've translated your documents into simplified Chinese. Some basics like making sure the address is correct and the documents submitted are, are complete and sending them through to the central authority. They will go through that process and will be served once they've gone through if they're correctly submitted. Obviously, you know, you may want to consider if you don't want to go through the Hague service, whether or not you want to have some foreign representative pick up the service of particular proceedings for counterparties in China if time is of the essence, because there is that process that has to be gone through. And that is something that, that some of our clients um, will seek to do in their transactional documents to make sure if they need to go extremely quickly, then that they can do so. Uh, but other than that, I mean, the process does seem to work. It does do so in accordance with the treaty obligations that China has signed up to. Yes. And it's worth mentioning that many countries have made various reservations to, you know, the full, they haven't signed up to the full Hague Convention for perfectly practical reasons. I remember having a difficulty in a South American country wanting to surf by posts. And I said, what's the address? And they said, well, it's the factory beyond the Pepsi-Cola factory at the bottom of the valley. And that's the full address. <laughs> and I said, in that case, let's not use post. Maybe it'll be better to have some kind of in-hand service, you know, for a process agent. And so those are quite legitimate reasons to, to not use the post. But I mean, before a judge, presumably, in, in the offshore courts, you, you want to be proving to that judge that the service was truly, genuinely reliable and effective. So so in-hand service, a personal service or a process service, got to be the way to go, hasn't it? Or, or, or ensuring that under Hague, you've crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's. Yes. And when it comes to enforcement, um, one of the big things that, that you'll find 
mind if you're trying to enforce a judgment you may have the wonderful judgment to enforce but if you haven't gone through that process at the beginning of making sure that you've affected service properly it may be that you find that your judgment that you've spent so long obtaining um, isn't properly enforceable and that's Absolutely. typically something we, we do see um, and mm. it can come as a surprise to clients that, that you know that's that's a really important thing to do and that's what we make sure we do here at Harney's. Mm, absolutely well that asset tracing element of it is uh, well probably for another podcast but certainly uh, very complex. A lot of people ask us about taking evidence in China particularly US firms will say well can we take a deposition in China you know what's to stop me flying over to to Beijing to do that. And equally in, in Cayman Islands proceedings to do with valuations of companies following a privatization, although the process is not a deposition process, that there are certainly recorded meetings between valuers and management of, of the Cayman company that are then subsequently adduced in evidence in court. There are some severe restrictions uh, in relation to, well, should we start with depositions at least in China? Yeah, I mean, as we understand it from our PRC council, colleagues, Chinese law explicitly forbids foreign lawyers and other foreign personnel from carrying out what is known as judicial acts. And, mm. and that would include the taking of depositions in the territory of the People's Republic of China beyond those commitments under the Hague Evidence Convention. Mm. And, you know, the pre-trial discovery of documents isn't really viable in the PRC as, as we understand it. And so those types of restrictions, one has to be very mindful mindful of. Mm. Um, one wouldn't want to be doing anything that would go against those restrictions. And so typically what we see are clients or the witnesses uh, will travel to other jurisdictions, to other localities where that is not um, necessarily an issue. Uh, mm. And that seems to us to strike the right balance between what's necessary for, for the foreign litigation and, you know, making sure that, that we are absolutely 100% compliant with the laws of the PRC. And then you've got this slight distinction, a deposition is giving evidence on oath, but there is some distinction between giving evidence in the course of a trial on oath before a judge. I assume both are caught by the provisions. And so if you're doing a trial by Zoom, which you do a lot of, I know, <laughs> in the Cayman Islands or uh, the BVI, you know, what do you do with your clients? You, you regard that as the same as the prohibition against depositions, I, I imagine. Well, I think we all always are on the side of caution. And as you know, Ian, sitting in Hong Kong, we have a, a large Hong Kong office and the easiest thing to do is avoid any issue. And uh, we fly up with the, with the clients to Hong Kong if, they, if they're going to have to give evidence mm. by um, video link. We, we do mm. it there where, where, where there isn't that concern. And on, on a practical level, you sometimes have to sort of forewarn the, the offshore judges and even the, the other parties just to make sure as a sort of matter of, of professional courtesy, you ventilated the issue well in advance at a case management conference because the last thing you want to do is you know sort of first day of trial and, and you realize that one party does not seem to have been aware of this rule or is not complying because you, you don't even want to participate <laughs> in the trial if, the, if there's going to be that issue so you know dealing with it early on it, it seems to be the the right thing to do even before we get to the trial stage though there are particular processes in China that I just like to ask you about and I have to say of, of 10 years of being or is it 11 years of being in Asia 
I, I often get a different result when I ask this question. But if I need an affidavit notarized in the PRC, what are the rules that sort of, it seems to be a little bit more complicated than in a common law country. Can you just talk me through it? Well, typically what we find in terms of notarization is that you can swear or rather declare affirmations in the PRC before a notary public. They can certainly be affirmed directly in Chinese, no, no difficulty with that. If that evidence is in English, which is obviously the, the language that the courts and the BVI and Cayman and Bermuda use, then it can be that some notaries will want to see a full translation of the entire affirmation. But what we find more and more frequently now as, as matters progress is that provided that the person who is affirming it uh, understands it, can confirm that they understand it in English, then you don't necessarily have to have the translation at the point of affirming it. But, you know, there is a variety of different practices amongst um, different areas, different districts and, and different mm-hmm. um, notaries. So best practice is to make sure you have that affirmation mm. translated into Chinese at that point in time. I, I mean, is it fair to say, like many countries, there are sort of some regional variations? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and in a country as large and diverse as China, that's probably mm. um, unsurprising. So many countries have notary publics and common law and civil law systems do it very differently. But you know, in our systems, we would never imagine that a notary had to verify the truth of the content of the statement. In fact, the notary has the authority by government to witness the fact of the affiant signing on the jurat of the affidavit. So there's a slightly different approach there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And certainly for civil law, it's, this is a civil law jurisdiction mm. and the notarial act has its own particular value and weight, as I understand it from PRC council mm. as a matter mm. of PRC law. Mm. So um, it is a different approach and it's fascinating, certainly for me and for my team to see the interplay between the common law system and that we have offshore with that civil law system that we have here in the PRC. And, and then there's an interesting interplay. Uh, you know, the offshore courts over the years have actually moved more to an English system, particularly for trial, to have witness statements rather than affidavits, because obviously you'd swear to the truth of and adduce an examination in chief your witness statement when you're put in the witness box. And so it'll be interesting to see whether or not, in fact, if you have a problem with a notary wishing to verify the contents of the statement, having it fully translated, and that might cause delay, it'll be interesting to see actually whether you could sort of amend the jurat to say, you know, I've specifically said here, we've amended it and we've been very open with the offshore judges about this. Your jurat says, I merely act as witness to witness the fact of the signature. I mean, I've certainly done that over the years, but you obviously have to be very open about it. Do you think that's that's the future? I think that's one part of the future. I think also you'll know very well, Ian, and BVI and our commercial court rules, that unless an affidavit is required under another part of the CPR for the purposes of commercial claims, witness statements are perfectly acceptable to support interim applications. And so really, wherever possible, we do tend to use witness statements. It, it certainly is more efficient, uh, speeds things up and avoid having to go down to visit the notary public at their office and take that trip down there. So we're always looking for ways to make the litigation as quick and efficient and convenient for our clients in what is otherwise, you know, usually quite a stressful situation for them. Well, Becky, I admire your confidence in me that I was aware of the rules. Um, I, I, I decline to <laughs> confirm or deny. Um, thank you very much for a truly fascinating discussion about what it's like on the ground there in mainland China. Thank you very much for having me, Ian. 
Thanks for listening to this month's episode. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on the latest episodes of Take 10. Thanks for joining.